0: Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word for us today brother. Would
1: you pray with me? Father, give us eyes to see how we are like Jonah today as we look at this prayer, which in so many ways seems really good would you give us the eyes to see in the scriptures today where the true bottom of the matter is that it's not? And as hard as that may be to see in this passage, God, we know it is all the more challenging to see in our hearts. When we try, we're saying the right things. But our heart is not contrite before you. Our heart is not broken by our sin, and therefore, we can't even begin to fathom the extent of your grace and your mercy to us, God. Would you give us eyes to see this message in this text today? More than that, would you give us hearts that long to be changed by it? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There is something we like to do when we meet a very powerful or famous person, for instance, like a movie star or something like this, uh, we know it's a little pathetic, but we, go, <laughs> we do it anyways. We go out of our way to try and find some kind of a common ground with that person, right? Like we know them, right? For instance, we might name drop someone who's like a degree or two closer to that person than we are, but, but we happen to know, like, hey, hey, uh, do you remember that girl named Jill who is a part-time stagehand on that movie scene that, that you, you did, that movie. She has like short brown hair and he has, you're not going to believe it, that's my cousin. That is my cousin, so, right? We do this all the time. In a more respectable way, this is why these days we like to take selfies with powerful people, right? It's our first instinct to take the selfie. Why do we do that? It's because we want digital evidence, right? Do you see this? Do you see this picture? Do you see the Queen of England right there? That's her. Do you see who's standing next to her? <laughs> right? That's me. It's like I know her. It's like I know her. There's something about our world intersecting with their world that makes us feel very powerful. And proud. And, and self Important Because, right, we know this, this powerful, important person, right? But the truth is, we don't. <laughs> we don't. In our passage today, Jonah is basically doing this with God. After God has a fish swallow him up <laughs> to take him back to dry land so that he can go to Nineveh, Jonah prays a prayer of thanksgiving, and it is a flowery, pious sounding prayer that emphasizes Jonah's insider access to God and how he knows God will save him because basically he's a Hebrew and Hebrews you know they're kind of tight with God right they know him he knows them right not like those pagans oh especially especially not like those Ninevites but what we're going to see today I'm convinced is that if we really know God, we will extend his grace to those who don't. If we really know God, we'll extend his grace to those who don't. This is our big idea for today. Ultimately, it is not our spiritual prowess or position that proves we know God. It is a humble heart that receives his grace and extends it to others even when it's very hard to extend it to others, by the way. Now, you're going to see each point this week is made up of two parts. There's the big and the bold part of the point that you'll see, and that's basically just what happens in the story, right? And then there's a smaller part, and basically that's trying to get at what's really being said in the story. You see what I mean as we get into this here? Uh, Basically, what kind of statement is this book really making? At this point in the story. And so first in part one we see God sends a fish to swallow Jonah. But the statement that's really being made here from God to Jonah is no, no, no. Not so fast, buddy. Right? Not so fast. I'll show you what I mean here. If you look with me at verse 17 it says the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of this fish for three days and three Night. Now, I mentioned last week that, again, you may be very familiar with the story of Jonah, and so you may have known all along, as soon as I announced that we were doing this series even, that fish is coming. You knew it. But in the flow of this story, it's really important for us to understand, Jonah did not know that, Right? So in last week's passage, he volunteered to be thrown overboard, fully expecting to die, which really matters because if Jonah had died, he never would have made it to Nineveh. Do you see this? He never would have made it. And so I think we're meant to wonder in last week's passage, wait a second, would he really rather die than be sent by God to preach to his enemies in Nineveh? Now, with that in mind, In one sense, there is no doubt, and I don't want to undermine this, that God is showing kindness to Jonah here by rescuing him from the sea. And yet, in another sense, he is also rescuing Jonah. We have to see this against his will (laughs) to bring him to the very people that he was trying to run away from. And so we have to see this, right? This is always the case in Jonah. There are layers of meaning. There's a story happening on the surface of the book. But then, if we just have the eyes to see it and to look deeper, there is a message beneath the surface of this book. And if we don't see that, friends, we are going to miss that message for us. We're going to miss it. We'll walk away from this book thinking that the only application for us is, hey, you better watch out for those whales. Right? Right? That's not it. This book never openly condemns anything that Jonah says or does. Never. It just simply describes it, and it leaves that tension in us to connect the dots. And that is part of the power of this book. And I say that now because this is the point of the book, where people are often tempted to be very distracted by their sentimentality. Okay? Okay? This is where we start to think, oh, look, God loves Jonah so much to have this fish come and swallow him against his will during a suicide attempt to bring him to his sworn enemies. Isn't that so sweet, right? Now, I'm not saying here that God does not love Jonah. It's complex, right? Two things can be true at once. Again, he did deserve to die in the sea, and God is rescuing him. So on one hand, God is showing tremendous kindness and mercy to Jonah here. But he's not just doing the guy a favor. Okay? He's not. By saving Jonah in this way, it's as if God is saying, no, 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 no. Not so fast, buddy. Okay? I'm not letting you off that easily. You are not going to Tarshish. You are not dying at sea. My friend, you are going to Nineveh. But it does make sense that some people miss this, particularly at this point in the book, because it's true, Jonah is on his best behavior in the belly of this whale. He is on his best behavior he even prays a heartfelt prayer of thanksgiving so there's there there is some heart change in Jonah we don't want to miss but next we're going to see on the surface of the story here God or sorry Jonah cries out to God that's what's happening in chapter 2 but beneath the surface if we just look a little deeper here what we'll see is that the statement he's really making is this I knew you'd save me God I knew you'd save me right So with three full days to be in complete darkness and isolation, Jonah has a chance here, plenty of time, to reflect on this entire situation and to change his tune. And and right away, we do see a noteworthy change in his posture towards God, right? He was just running away from God's call on his life, and now he is thanking God that he even has a life, right? And so there does seem to be some kind of progress in Jonah. Which makes sense, right? After an experience like he's just had, he, he, he nearly died. I'm sure it was pretty traumatic, right? And so Jonah is crying out to God here. He is giving God credit for saving his life. And he is expressing a deep sense of satisfaction and gratitude to God for all of this, okay? Now, I want to pause here and say we are going to rip Jonah to shreds in just a minute here. Again, that will happen uh, You're probably noticing a theme in this book uh, that this book is not particularly flattering to Jonah, even in the times where you think, I don't know, maybe, maybe he's starting. Nope, (laughs) he's not. But I do want to warn us against the possible danger as well at this point in the book. As we are, our, our eyes are open more and more to the elements of satire in this story of Jonah beneath the surface of it, it is very possible for us, in our minds, to paint such a caricature of Jonah that we stop identifying with his spiritual pride. And we start to just kind of laugh off the message of this book as if we don't need to hear it, right? It's very tempting to read of all of Jonah's folly and think, oh yeah, I've got a neighbor just like that, right? Let's not do that, right? Let's remember that we have something to learn here in Jonah's foolishness. We are like Jonah. So please be careful not to just giggle away here while we rip Jonah to shreds. God inspired this book to be written, I am convinced, so that it might rip us to shreds. uh, So that we might be convicted by it. Okay? But with that said, the ripping part, this first and I think most compelling evidence of Jonah's spiritual pride here actually has to do with what is not mentioned in the prayer. And, and, and namely, in this prayer with three days to think about everything that's just happened, Jonah never once even acknowledges, let alone repents of his sin. It's not in there. You can keep looking. I looked all week. It's not in there. He does acknowledge his dire circumstances, that he is sinking, sure enough, to the depths of the sea, but he conveniently fails to mention that he was drowning in this way because of his disobedience. And it's very interesting, actually, because it's not as if Jonah has nothing to say about Jonah in this prayer, right? Jonah has quite a bit to say about Jonah in this prayer. In just these seven verses, he mentions himself some 24 times. Okay, Look with me at verse 2. I'll kind of try and fill in some subtext for us, I think. It says, I called out to the Lord that I was running from, out of my distress, which I deserved. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice, even though I was clearly disregarding his. Look with me at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple, because that's where Hebrews' prayers go. They go to the temple. And I, thankfully, am a Hebrew. That bit about the temple is actually really important. I want you to notice something here. It's not just that Jonah is celebrating the fact that he survived. He is actually even presuming that even though he is in the belly of a fish at the moment, he shall yet again look upon God's holy temple. Now, the temple was the epicenter of all Hebrew pride. The temple was the most elite Hebrew exclusive place on earth. Non-Hebrews were not even allowed to go into the temple. But here, Jonah is fantasizing about worshiping God in the temple. He's even boasting, if you see, about this incredible sacrifice that he is going to make to fix all of this as soon as he gets back to Jerusalem, right? While God has him in the belly of a fish on the way to Nineveh. Jonah's religious and national pride are are even more evident here in verses 8 and 9. Now, I want you to remember, Jonah just got thrown off of a storm-tossed ship by a group of pagan sailors. That'll be important. I actually want to just try and rewind, if we could, in this story and try and envision that story of chapter 1 unfolding in this order like the scene of a movie. I want to try and visualize this with you. First, all the pagan sailors are frantically running around this ship during the storm. They're calling out to their vain pagan idols. Then they figure out that actually it was Jonah was the problem all along as this storm continues to grow more and more intense until they just can't even bear it anymore. They have to throw him off of the ship overboard. Then immediately, so Jonah's in the water. Then immediately the sky clears up. (laughs) The sun comes out. Maybe the camera even starts to sort of pan back in this peaceful way. Right, as we see these now formerly pagan sailors crying out to Jonah's God in worship. They even make a sacrifice, a vow to him. So in the beginning of this scene, they were crying out to their vain idols. By the end of this scene, they were worshiping the God of Israel. Right? Now, but again, it's a tranquil Sunny day with a cool ocean breeze at this point. But Jonah was not there to see any of that. Because he's underwater. Okay? Now cut. Next scene. Underwater. uh, Jonah praying to God from the belly of a fish. Right after that, here's what he prays. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with my voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what i have vowed i will pay you see that in other words jonah is saying god i know those silly pagan sailors we just dealt with are hopelessly lost up there i know it even though we know they're actually worshiping his god but thankfully he prays thankfully i am not hopelessly lost Oh, yes, thankfully, I do know how to worship you, God. I know how to make these sacrifices, and I can tell as soon as I get back to Jerusalem, I am just going to nail it, right? Now, this is where it's a bit challenging, right? Is this statement true? That those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Is that true? Absolutely. You just do a quick survey of the Bible on idolatry. It will not be hard to see. That is 100% theologically accurate. But the fact that Jonah is praying this from the belly of a fish after nearly killing a ship full of idol-worshiping pagans who felt the need to pray to their vain idols because he was paying no regard to the God of Israel, right? All of this is meant to show us as readers that this proud Hebrew still thinks he is spiritually superior to pagans. Even in the belly of the fish. Now all of that really packs a lot of irony into this next and final statement in Jonah's prayer. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now that word Lord in all caps actually means Yahweh. Which is God's special covenant name for his people. Not everyone called God Yahweh. Only the Hebrews called God Yahweh. So this basically means, the, word, the phrase basically means the God of Israel. So in other words, Jonah is saying, salvation belongs to my God, the God of Israel, not those vain pagan idols that those sailors were praying to. Now again, that is a true statement. Salvation does belong to the God of Israel, but the fact that Jonah is praying it in this context after we just saw pagans worshiping the God of Israel basically because God saved them from Jonah. (laughs) All of this is meant to show us that as flowery and as theologically accurate as Jonah's prayer is, his prideful heart toward this world has not And Jonah's pride is only further highlighted by the crude and inglorious detail of what God does next. Next, in the story, God has the fish puke Jonah up. (laughs) Puke him up. And I think the statement beneath the story there is, cute prayer, buddy. Now go. (laughs) Right? Not impressed. Go. Look with me at verse 10. It says, the Lord spoke to the fish. So God is telling him exactly what to do here. So this is his response to Jonah's prayer. And it says, the fish vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now that word vomited, I think, is used very purposefully here, very intentionally. Uh, There are any number of other more refined words that the author could have used. God could have delivered Jonah from the belly of this fish. Uh, this, This fish could have released him there onto the shores. But nope. Puked him up. Puked him up. In other words, here's the contrast in the story. God, thank you that I'm not hopeless like those pagan sailors. Thank you that I know, as a well-respected Hebrew man, how to make sacrifices and how to worship you appropriately. And thank you that salvation belongs to you, God. (laughs) Right? You see the contrast here. You see the comedy in this, right? There's an element of satire. Compared to Jonah's lofty, pious-sounding speech, this fish puking him up seems incredibly crude, right? And that is exactly the point, because it highlights the fact that Jonah seems to think he's pretty tight with God. I don't know if that's really true, right? God doesn't seem particularly impressed with his prayer. It's almost as if God's saying, look, buddy, I'm glad you've had a change of heart. I am glad you've come to your senses and seen how gracious I've been to you. That's true, and that's great. But now let's see if that praise and thanksgiving is really genuine. Let's see. Because if you've really experienced my grace here, if you've really seen the depths from which I've saved you here, if you really know me in the way you seem to think, then you will share my heart for the Ninevites. And you will go extend my grace to them. See how all of these pieces come together to show us our big idea today. If we really know God, we will extend his grace to those who don't. Ultimately, as we consider this uh, passage in in the full context of the book, I think it's really designed to create a tension for us. We're meant to read this and think, oh, well, now that God has saved Jonah so dramatically, right? He has to have softened his heart toward the Ninevites, right? His hard hearted pride could not possibly withstand such a dramatic rescue as this one. But it will, it will withstand. Uh, Because Jonah and many Hebrews throughout the Bible thought that they were superior to every other people group, every other nation, because they were a part of God's chosen spiritual nation. They lost sight of the fact that God had raised up the very nation of Israel so that through Israel he could bless every single nation because he is the God who's created it all and all nations belong to him. But this Hebrew pride and arrogance that we see in Jonah will only continue long, long after the days of Jonah, even into the days of Christ. During Jesus' life and ministry, two groups called the scribes and the Pharisees began to question Jesus' authority. They demanded a sign from him. They're basically saying, listen, okay, do something miraculous to kind of prove to us who you actually are, that you're God's son, and and, and why we should actually listen to you. Now, I want you to notice how Jonah-like that was, right? These were proud Hebrew religious leaders, and they're basically saying to Jesus, look, we're the Hebrew authorities here, okay? You go ahead and prove yourself to us. We'll let you know what we think, okay? And here's how Jesus responded to them. Here's how Jesus responded. It's on the screen. He said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now listen very carefully to this next part. This is very important. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. We're going to see that next week. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, church, Jesus is saying, listen, I am going to die be buried in the ground for three days and I am going to rise from the dead to redeem you from your sins. I am going to go down in the belly of the fish for you and then I am going to return alive from what I never should have been able to survive. And if the sign of my death and resurrection is not enough to break you of your religious pride, then listen, you will be out of luck because there won't be another sign after this one. In fact, all those wicked pagans from that ancient city of Nineveh, you know those people? The people you think you're so much better than today, the ones who actually do see their need for my mercy and actually do repent, unlike you, they will be raised in the end to judge you on my behalf. Church, Jesus is saying, look, if you think you know God because you're a Hebrew, you've got that way wrong. You've got that way wrong. Because here, listen to this. I am God. I am looking you right in the eye. And you still can't see your religious pride. Christ himself, church, used this story today, Jonah chapter 2, to point us to his resurrection and to expose our religious pride in our self-important spirituality, church. Listen, someone far greater than Jonah has come. He has come to rescue us from our pride and our self-importance. He went down into the belly of that fish that we deserve to be swallowed by in order to make it painfully obvious to us that we have no claim of knowing God in and of ourselves. And any relationship that we get to have with this God is all a gift of grace. Now, on one hand, if we don't see that, We will be self-exalting religious people just like Jonah. We may have great theology. We may pray very eloquently. We may even be seen by some as a great spiritual leader, but not by God. He will not be amused. On the other hand, if we do see this, If we really do know this God by grace alone, then, church, we will share his heart for lost and sinful people like us who don't know him in this way. I just want to spend some time here uh, to share three takeaways here from this story uh, to help us apply the passage to real life today. The first takeaway is this. Number one, God does not want our religious pride. He doesn't want it. I want us to consider in in what ways do we think that we are spiritually superior to others? Um, In what ways are we tempted toward this kind of religious pride, much like Jonah? Uh, I just want to consider this. parents, uh, do we feel entitled to see our kids trust and follow Jesus because of how great a childhood we're providing them? How zealously we're protecting them from a sinful world, and how clearly we've imparted strong biblical values in the home. Now, I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. We we need to do those things as parents. We need to be faithful parents, but have these things made us proud? Have they taken our eyes and shifted our confidence away from God's kindness and his mercy in the life of our kids and put our, our attention on ourselves? in our spiritual abilities. Listen, if our kids never come to faith in Christ, will we make that spiritual journey in their life about us? Uh, Will we say, I don't get it. We did everything right. We did it how you're supposed to do it. As if salvation belongs to us and not to God. As if we should just expect our kids to be saved because, I don't know, there are kids and look, they grew up in this church. That's not how it works. And if we think that is how it works, it could be that there is a pride that God is trying to reveal in us. There is something that we need even to repent of. Our kids do not just need us and our stellar spiritual performances as parents to come to faith in Christ. As if salvation belongs to us, and so it should just be in their blood. No, salvation belongs to this God of Israel. And more than our parenting, our kids need to encounter this profound grace of God. If our kids inherit anything from us, by the way, frankly, it's our sin. So parents, parent faithfully. Let's parent faithfully, absolutely. But let's pray that our kids see in us the grace of this God and not just our religious pride. What about our national religious pride? That's certainly an element in this entire book. Uh, Have we let our love for this country and its rich Christian history harden our hearts toward people of other faiths or people of no faith at all? Have we begun to see them as the enemies, our enemies, the enemies of God and his people? Do we scoff at them? Do we belittle them? Do we lament the fact that they're ruining everything, right? Do we post Bible verses on Facebook claiming to be redeemed by the grace of a merciful God and then you know every once in a while we might just sprinkle in a little bit of bashing the lefties? If you've done some lefty bashing online today, you might be tempted to think, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. What I say online, it's true. It is true. I am right about this stuff. Maybe, maybe. But the theological content of Jonah's prayer was true as well. It was his heart that was the problem. It was his religious pride That blinded him to his desperate need for God's grace, even when it was right in his face. So should we have a category for critiquing the the evil of our world? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do we need to be clear about the reality of sin and God's judgment without a doubt? That's why God is sending Jonah to Nineveh. But we need to warn this world of the righteous judgment of a holy God as if we know we deserve it and will not get it. Not because we have the right affiliations or spiritual habits, not because we're freedom-loving Americans, but because salvation belongs to this God and he gave it to us when we deserve death. Church, if Israel who actually was God's chosen nation, by the way, if Israel needed to hear this message, that their national religious identity did not make them spiritually superior to anyone, if they needed to hear that, how much more so do we need to hear this as American Christians today? How much more so do we need to hear that God loves the socialists? and the Antifa members. More than that, he expects us to extend his grace to them because we're not as special as we think. And the truth is, we need it just as badly as they do. They are never, church, listen, please hear me on this. They will never be reminding us of this on a regular basis on our favorite cable news channels or talk radio podcasts. They will not mention this. We need to hear it from God today. We need to hear it from this book. If our religious pride is causing us to look down on any other group in this world as if we are somehow better than them because we're freedom-loving Christian Americans, listen, church, we need to repent of that. We need to repent. God is not interested in our religious pride or our national religious pride. And next we see number two, God doesn't want our self-centered spirituality. He doesn't want our self-centered spirituality. Now, when our sin brings us to a low place, it is very tempting to look for reasons to convince ourselves, well, my sin really isn't that bad. We see Jonah doing this, this whole prayer, right? Look, look, God did save me, so I must be kind of worthy somehow, right? It's tempting to ignore the true depth of our sin by conveniently overlooking it and emphasizing all the ways that, look, we, I mean, we are faithful, and, and we do understand the truth about God, uh, but that misses the point because our coming to grips with the shocking extent of our sin, that is not a barrier, church, to knowing God. That, that is a prerequisite to knowing God. We've got to fight this temptation to, to turn in on ourselves with a very charitable light and very rose-colored glasses when God has us in the belly of a fish. When Jonah was swallowed by this fish, he should have been brought to tears at the hate-filled evil that was in his heart. He, he should have realized how self-centered and hypocritical he was. That would have been the appropriate response. But instead of facing his true spiritual need, he looked the other way. And he started pretending, no, 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 I, I don't have a spiritual need per se. Right? I, I mean, I know I have some physical needs. I definitely have physical needs here. I definitely need some oxygen. I am going to need some oxygen for sure. And thankfully, I worship the God who made the sea and the dry land. So thank you, God, right? You see that? A little shift inward to avoid our sin. When our sin is exposed, is this how we respond? Right? Do we quickly turn our heads the other way? refusing to uh, see or even acknowledge the full extent of it? Do we ask God to rescue us from all of the external circumstances of our lives while we completely ignore our inner life? Church, when God makes it painfully obvious that we are wicked and we need his grace, when he puts us in the belly of a fish, so to speak, let's not be blind to the spiritual blessing in this. God is graciously showing us the depths of our sin so that we can truly appreciate the full extent of his mercy to us. So when we find ourselves in the belly of that fish, let's not scour the scriptures for some pithy, uplifting proof text to boost our mood and bolster our self-esteem. We don't need an esteem for ourselves. Jonah had plenty of that, right? We don't need a shallow, self-absorbed faith that expects God to save us without ever sanctifying us. When that belly of the fish is dark enough, long enough, and that sea keeps getting deeper and deeper, that kind of self-exalting spirituality will not sustain us, church. It may even blind us to the reality of our sin. And make us immune to the only remedy to all of this. Because God does not want our spiritual pride. He is not interested in our self-centered spirituality. Finally, in point three here, we see God wants us to humbly share the grace that we have received. He wants us to humbly share the grace that we've received. Church, if you're here today and, and you are realizing, wait a second. I think I'm Jonah. (laughs) I think I'm Jonah. There's great news for you in this book. There's great news for you here. If as you are reading this, you are thinking, oh boy, that is me, right? That is me. My theology is spot on. I have great theology. And I know all the right things to say about how to relate to this God and how undeserving even I am of that. But in my heart of hearts, look, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I think I'm a pretty stellar spiritual person. And and actually, it's blinded me to God's heart for this world. It has convinced me that I am superior to it. If that is where we find ourselves today, then there is great news for us in this book. It's just found in What Jonah Doesn't Do. (laughs) There is great news for us here, and that news is that we don't have to fight our way out of that sin, we don't have to swim our way out of that sin. We don't have to sharpen our theology a little bit more or add to our spiritual resume to be set free from that sin. Church, all we need to do is repent. To repent. It's to stare at the inside of that fish's disgusting digestive system. Is to listen to the whirring and the whooshing of the deep ocean above us. It's to smell the rotten stench of where our sin has led us. And it's to say to God, okay, you're right. I don't even deserve to be here in the belly of this fish. I'm sorry. You are God. I am not. Salvation belongs to you. And you've given it to me even when I spit in your face, God. So who am I to to, to keep it from anyone else? Receive his grace to you today. Someone greater than Jonah has come to deal with our self-righteousness and our pride. Receive his grace with the full understanding of the judgment we actually deserve. You see... When we let go of our spiritual pride in this way, and we stop making our faith about us and how spiritual we are, God will open our eyes and help us to see why we should go to Nineveh. And ultimately, it's because we are no better off than anyone else in that city. And even still, he has gone to such great lengths to make sure that we could know him.